Um, I'm, a, I'm a father of two. My son is four. His name is Bowen. I do this, but he's like this tall now. My daughter is two, going on 16. And um, they get in these competitions. They're in this phase of their life. Bowen's about to be five, and Sadie's about to be three, which blows my mind. Uh, but they get in these, these, they're in this phase of life where I'm faster, I'm taller, I'm, I don't know, believe it or not, I'm hungrier than you. <laughs> Seriously. And then they prove it. <laughs> um, so, and what's fun for me in this stage of life is that everything that happens, every competition that they compete in, uh, dad is the judge. And what I mean by that is, I, the other week, Bowen said, dad, look at my new dance move. And we dance around the house. I'm not going to show you any of our moves because they're secret and might get you a dancing career. So I'm not going to show you any, but we, we, we dance in our house um, poorly, but we do. And Bowen came up with this new dance move. I'm not going to show you. It would hurt if I did. Uh, but Bowen does this new dance move. Sadie comes up immediately after Bowen, and she says, Dad, show you my new dance move. It's the same exact dance move, a little bit underdeveloped, I might add, but it's the same exact dance move. And then Bones like, mine's faster. And Sadie's like, mine's faster. And Bones like, mine's better. And Sadie's like, mine's better. And then they're looking at me like, who's faster? Who's better? What's fun for me in this stage, and that usually leads to a fight, because I'm honest. I got play Kate because my kid has feelings, right? Bowen's is obviously better. He's older. He's got more muscles. Maybe, maybe one day, but just not now, okay? But you're cuter. Um, what's fun for me is that they just, like, are dying for my attention. What's fun for me is they're like, Dad, watch. Dad, look. Dad, check out what's you know, this new thing for me. And they want to share in that experience with me. What's challenging is that they're dying for my attention. But it seems like everything else in this world is also vying for my attention. My phone. My job. My friends. My hobbies, right? My wife. And all of these things, like, in our lives are, are vying for our attention. And some of those things are not bad, right? Your family is definitely not bad. Your spouse, you definitely should show them attention. Your kids, your hobby, all those things are not bad. Like, we've got all these things in our world that's asking, craving, screaming for our attention. Then there are other things that are just as loud, if not louder, but it's the other things that people won't notice that are asking for our attention. Like worry, and stress, anxiety. I love to give those things attention. Our success, our pride, those things are craving for my attention. Those, all of those things are easy to give uh, attention to our comforts, our dreams, right? Like those things are saying, like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And while time, while like Facebook and Netflix and I don't mean to stub my toes, uh, Facebook and Netflix and your job and the things outside your home, while those are competing for your time and your attention from like your family and your kids, there are other things that are trying to draw your attention away from Jesus. 
probably could. If you get sick, when you throw up, if you've been around Restore Church uh, for any time, you will throw up this statement, right? Here, it's all about Jesus. We try to do our best since we started in March to make church all about Jesus. Everything we do, every penny we spend, uh, all the time and energy, uh, we want to make it all about Jesus. So let's look at that today. If you're in John chapter 6, it's probably one of my favorites chapters in all of the Bible. We're going to go through the whole thing. We're not going to read every verse. It is a little bit of a long chapter, so that's why we have to go kind of quick. Uh, we're going to start chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, Jesus has just fled for his life from Jerusalem. So look, I'll show you. Judea and Jerusalem are right here. Call them South Carolina. All right. Uh, Jer Jerusalem is in Judea. Judea is the region. Jerusalem is the city. And then above above them, call it North Carolina, it's Samaria. <coughs> All right? Just so you're getting the image. Um, North Carolina is just everyone's aware. It's God's favorite state. So, um, and spe specifically Eastern North Carolina, where we say y'all a lot. Um, so there's North Carolina, Samaria, and then above that is Virginia. Just in case y'all didn't know, now you've got the geography of the United States. And uh, we'll call that Galilee. It's the same, all right? Now, instead of taking the uh, ocean, which is on the east, we're going to put the Mediterranean Sea on the west, right? So now they're all, like, right here. That's how they roll. That's how they roll. Um, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, okay? Now, like, northeast is this place called the Sea of Galilee. That's where this story takes place. Jesus just left Jerusalem because they're trying to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And in chapter 5, verse 18, it says, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples, it wasn't time for Jesus to die yet, so he leaves and he goes up to the Sea of Galilee. He's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in a town called Bethsaida. Um, that's important to the story. Chapter 6, verse 5, that's where we are. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him, and he said to Philip, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Verse 6 tells us that he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Verse 7 says this, Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread uh, for each one of these people to have a bite or to eat. Why does Jesus ask Philip? Um, what's interesting is that, uh, like, he's got all 12 of his disciples. Philip probably wasn't the smartest one. I mean, just taking odds, right? He's probably not the, the smartest one. I, I don't know. Maybe he was a chef. Maybe he was. Here's, here's why Jesus asked um, Philip. Philip's from Bethsaida. That's the town that they're in. And of all of the disciples, of all the 12 to know where to get food for all of these people who would know the one that's from there. Now, Jesus is making a really clear point to Philip. Philip, we need to feed all these people. You're from here. You ever been in, in like someone's hometown with them? And it's like annoying because they're like, yep, right there. That's the stop sign. We, we pull up to that thing and stop every time. It's like, bro, you do that in every town. I'm not just joking. There's my high school. I went there. I did, and I graduated. It's like, do 
you want me to high five you for something you should have done? Good job. Like, ever? It's like, you know, they do that with there. There's my football field. Man, back 30 years ago, I was a star of that. That's the yeah. I can throw a football over the mountains. I'm going to wait for y'all to get to Napoleon and die my perfect <laughs> So he asked Philip, because Philip's from this hometown. Maybe Philip is that annoying guy from Bethsaida. And Jesus just wanted to shut him up. Here's, here's what Jesus is trying to get across. You're right, Philip. <coughs> You're absolutely right. You can't do this. You couldn't do this if you knew where to where to get this stuff. Now watch this, right? Verse 8. Another of, the, of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and he says, Here's a boy with five uh, small barley loaves, or five loaves of bread, and two small fish. Um, but how far will they go among so many? Well, they're not going to go very far. Verse 10 says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. <laughs> That's good enough. There's plenty of grass in that place. They could have had salad. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Uh, this word men, uh, there were 5,000 men. There were probably more. That's just how they counted them. They counted men. And there were probably... Their wives were probably there. Their kids were probably around. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed He distributed to those who were seated as many as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Verse 12, when they all had had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. John missed that. Left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves all over, uh, left over by those who had eaten them. Uh, verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Check that out. They, after this happened, they all said, Surely this is the prophet who is, uh, who is to come into the world. So Jesus asked Philip, Hey, where are we going to feed all these people? They're all, they've all come to listen, right? They all want to hear what Jesus is going to say. They all want to hear the next word. They all want to see the next miracle. There's 5,000 people around. He asked Philip, who would know. Philip didn't know, so Jesus is like, I got it. I got you, dog. And he takes this happy meal, and he turns it into a golden corral buffet. If you eat at golden corral, stop. But that's what Jesus did. He takes this McDonald's happy meal, he turns it into a golden corral buffet to where there's more left over. The disciples go, and they pick up more, like 12 baskets full of bread. This is amazing. Here's the issue with this story. We've heard this story probably 5,000 times. We hear this story all the time, and we lose our sense of wonder with the story. Now imagine 5,000 people. There's two fish. That's probably not enough to feed four of us. And then there's five loaves of bread. That's, in our terms, that's like 60 pieces. If all of us in this room were to cut each piece of bread in half, we might be able to get like one of those pieces. And Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Now, not all 5,000 people probably saw it, right? And so it's a game of telephone. What happened? How did we get this food? Who touched this food? We're in sixth season. I'm not eating after you. I know where you fish. You know, there. But then, as the food passed back, so did the story of how it happened. Here's what I want to say. 
It would have been crazy. Like, asinine. It's not a cuss word. You can use it. It's a real word. It's like asinine for them to, to say, like, dude, that sourdough bread was the best bread I ever had. That bread fed all 5,000 people. I'm going to give all of my devotion to this kind of bread, and I'm never going to eat another kind of bread, sourdough, praise be to sourdough bread. Or it would have been also crazy for them to look at the fish and say, dude, that's the best fish I've ever had. Those two fish fed all of them. I'm never going to eat any other kind of fish. Praise be to the fish of the sea of the Galilee. I'm going to give it all of my devotion and all of my time and all of my love, right? Crazy. It would be crazy to view the success of what they're happening or what's happening to them based on anything other than Jesus. It was because of Jesus that they were fooled. And if you're in a good season of your life, that's awesome. Man, I, I love it. And we're going to praise and worship with you. Like the Bible talks about that as a church, we rejoice when others rejoice. And we mourn when others mourn. Right now, if you're in a season of your life where you're rejoicing, we want to rejoice with you. We want to celebrate with you. Your marriage is awesome. Your faith is so strong. Like, you just got a promotion at work. I don't know. Whatever it is that's making you joyful, we want to celebrate with you. But I want you to recognize another verse. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Yes, you worked hard for your promotion. Good job. But it came from God. Your marriage is killing it. But we're hoping that's on the foundation of Jesus. You're, you're in this great season of your life and you're in joyful, you're joyful even when it's tough. It's because of Jesus. Let's, let's not get things twisted. The Christian faith is not about you. Jesus' mission was about you. But the Christian faith is not about you. It's about Jesus. So when you're celebrating, when you're worshiping, when you're excited, let's give credit to let's give credit to where it's due. It's not because of the it's not because of the fish and the bread. It's because of Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So the crowds around and Jesus fed them, and they're like, and then the people in the back heard about the uh, heard about what happened in the front, and so you know what they're going to do? It's like us, like, and I want to see what's next, right? So push their way to the front or, or whatever. And Jesus is like, yo, this crowd is getting too big. So verse 16, chapter 6, verse 16, it says, it's on the next page. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. There they got into a boat, and they set across the lake for Capernaum. Capernaum's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, across from Bethsaida. Um, Capernaum, okay. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. Verse 19. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 21. When they were willing to take him into the boat, uh, then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Um, look at verse 24. 
Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. All right, so you got the scene. Everyone's around. Now, I always say this about Jesus. He would be an awful church planter. If Jesus were to start a church in Jacksonville, it would be smaller than ours. Because here's what happens. Every time he gets a big crowd around, he either says something that makes them mad and then they walk away. Or he just is like, I'm out. Now, here's what happens. He's got twelve, or he's got uh, 5,000 people. He's got 12 disciples, and they're all around. They all want to hear what Jesus has to say. They all want to see the next miracle. And he's like, look, I need to pray. And so he sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up to pray. Now, put yourself now in the disciples' shoes. Especially, I'm thinking of Peter. He's outgoing. Uh, he's the first to talk, and he often puts his foot in his mouth. I, uh, I, I feel him. You know what I'm saying? That's me a lot. Um, but here's here's this is what I'm saying. Jesus, no, dude, you got the crowd. Let's just talk about something that's easy, and then they'll follow us. Like let's just talk about how they'll have more money, or they'll get a little bit more healthier if they'll just follow us and invest their seed money, right? Jesus is like, no, man. Disciples, y'all go over there. We're going to go to the other side. We've got to get to Capernaum. I'm going to go pray while you're, on the, while you're out to sea. Now, listen, they get on the sea. you got fishermen in this boat. you got at least four fishermen who did this commercially like for a living. They know what they're doing on a boat. They get, uh, they get out there, and then the winds and the waves start to, uh, you know, they start to increase. They get in a little trouble. The storm is raging. Uh, verse 18 says, A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. They're in the middle of a storm. Now, most of the time, a boat in the Sea of Galilee that was hit by a storm, the storms in the Sea of Galilee were, were tremendous. They were tough. A lot of people would not sail from one side to the other, but Jesus puts his disciples and says, Go straight across. They get in the middle of the storm. Now, this is what I imagine happening. Where's Jesus? Like, four fishermen are probably running from one side to the other. They know what to do in a storm. But you got pe people like Simon and, like, Judas. You got people like Matthew. And they're like, dude, like, they're just trying to stay out of the way. But I imagine this question coming up a lot. <coughs> Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He sent us on this boat. And as the storm increases, I've had the question in the... And the uh, genuineness of the question starts to rise a little bit more, doesn't it? Where's Jesus? Yo, I'm in the middle of this storm because of him. Where's Jesus? I decided to follow him and leave everything that I've ever known before, my career, my family, to follow Jesus. And he's got me out here in the middle of this storm. Where is Jesus? Sound familiar? You might be on the boat. Maybe the storm just started. Or maybe it's at its peak. And you're like, man, I, I want to follow him. I just don't know where he is. Like, I can't feel him. I can't see him. I come to church. I don't know that he's there. Like, I want him, but he's just not I think Jesus starts to hear the where is Jesus question. And here it comes, right? Uh, he walks on the boat. The Bible says that the disciples were terrified. The Greek word means that they were literally shaking. 
the Greek word for fear is phobos. It's where we get our word for phobia, right? And so they're, they're shaking. They are, the word for terrified means that they're shaking. But Jesus comes to them and he says, do not be afraid. Our Bibles make this a little bit weird. It says, it is I. In our language, we have to say, I am something. Like, I am, I don't know, wearing a red shirt. I am uh, whatever. Like, if I were to just walk up to you and be like, yeah, what's up, man? I am. You'd be like, you are what? You are really making me uncomfortable is what you are. What Jesus does is he says, he walks out onto the water, and he says, it is, uh, do not be terrified. Stop shaking. And then he says this, I am. Now, there's no doubt that people in the boat knew exactly what he was saying. In the Old Testament, God calls himself over and over and over and over again. I am. Not I was, or not I will be if you meet these conditions, but God says, I am. I always am. I will be now and now and now and now and now. And Jesus coming on the boat, uh, walking on the water in the middle of their storm, he looks at me and he says, Don't be terrified. God is here. I am. And then, in verse 21, it says, Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. In another parallel story, the same story in a different, uh, different account of the Gospels, it says, When he got in the boat, the storm stopped. Look, Jesus, he will walk to you on the boat, or in the storm. Sounds a little cliche, but it's true. In the middle of your storm, Jesus is trying to tell you, look, I'm God. I, I am. It is I. Don't be terrified. Your storm your storm may continue. Like Jesus got into their boat, but it says they were willing to take him, they were willing to take him into the boat. Some of us like our storm, don't we? We enjoy it. Sorry about this, Mike. We're trying to figure it out. We're not doing a very good job, but we're trying to figure it out. When I say we, I mean me. Um sometimes we like our storm. Sometimes we don't want to get out of our storm. Sometimes Jesus is like, yo, look, right here. It's not even raining that hard. Look at me. And we're like, no, I'm good. I like the attention. I like the feeling. I like the pity. I like rock bottom. I like the way it feels. So now I'm good. And the Bible says that they were, they let him into the boat. They were willing to let him into the boat. I want to tell you something. That sometimes when you let Jesus into the boat, the storm gets worse. When you decide that you're going to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean that the storm is going to stop. But what it means is Jesus is in your boat. God is in your boat. All right. We got to hustle. Remember, a lot of kids are there. All right. Trying to get through chapter 6. I just want you to see how this is working. Remember, he just fed 5,000 people. This is one story. This is not multiple stories that I'm putting together. This is how John tells it. 5,000 people on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. East side. East side. And he then puts the disciples, they go across to the west side. And Jesus uh, meets them in the boat, remember the storm, and now they finally get there. Check out what happens 
when he gets to the west side of the boat. Uh, what verses do we have in this? After 24. I think we kind of skip a little bit. They come to him. Uh, they ask, Jesus, when did you get here? We didn't see you get on the boat. We've been kind of tracking you. When did you get here? And then Jesus is like, uh, even if you were to see me, you still wouldn't understand. So I'm kind of paraphrasing. Even if you were to see me, you, you still wouldn't understand. Um, and then look at verse 30. Y'all, check this out. How dumb can they be? So they asked him, if you are the son of God, if you are the rabbi, if you are the Messiah one, the one that God has sent, uh, what miraculous sign then would you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. I would, if I heard Jesus, I'd have been like, are you kidding me? You just said something about bread? I'm glad that this, this proves to you Jesus has more grace than anybody else I know. I know some people that have been like, you are really dumb. You are so dumb, for real. No one else got that video? Okay. That's cool. Y'all need to be on Facebook more. They asked him, Jesus, can you give us a sign? And we do that. We're, we're not so far away from them. We come back asking Jesus for the same thing over and over and over. And what's awesome is God's gracious and his mercies are new every day. And he doesn't look at me. Maybe sometimes he looks at me and be like, dude, you're really dumb. But all right. So they ask him, uh, you know, give us a miracle, give us a sign. Verse 32 says this, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. Right? They just said, our forefather Moses gave us the manna from heaven. He says, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What are you talking about? He's talking about himself. So then they say, let's do this. They say, sir, from now on, give us this bread. They, they're not getting it that it's talking about Jesus, but the fact that they would say, sir, give us the bread, is just like, y'all need to be kicked in the hind parts. You know what I'm saying? Wow, y'all are taking that serious. Y'all are like, yeah, for real. <laughs> then Jesus declared, listen, I am the bread of life. You hear that I am again? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, but and, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus comes to him and he's like, look, that food you had on the other side, you're hungry from that now. That's why you're asking me for more. You just want more. You just want more. You just want more. Now, then Jesus says this. He's like, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. Now, they don't get the analogy and they're like, yeah, this is it gets weirder. They're like, how, how can this work? Now I'm going to paraphrase the next. I encourage you to go back and read it. Uh, the next few verses. This is what Jesus says. They said, I'm the bread of life. You'll never be hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. They're like, please give us this bread. Uh, then he says, alright. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. And they're like, Oh, my bad, I shouldn't even ask. It's weird. And then they're like, but well, you can't be talking about real food. And he's like, yeah, I am. If you're going to follow me, you have to eat my flesh 
and drink my blood. Now, before you leave, because we're teaching about cannibalism, Jesus is foreshadowing uh, what we know as communion. He does this all the time with parables. Like, he'll teach a parable, and everyone's like, I don't get it. Now, when they ask Jesus why you teach a parable, Jesus says, I teach a parable so that people might pursue the truth. They might pursue the meaning of it. And Jesus is like, look, he, that's what he wants right now. That's what he wants them to do is to pursue the truth. Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, it's just one question. Just like now, where we really don't care about truth, we just, we just take the first thing that we read as truth. That's just what we do as a culture. They did the same thing. They're like, dude, this guy's crazy. I don't think I can get down with this. And so then um, we get to verse 60. You're welcome. We skipped like 25 verses. Verse 60. On hearing this, many of the disciples, this whole group of 5,000 people who are called disciples, uh, many of his disciples says, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Following Jesus is not easy. Anybody who tells you it is easy, they're either lying or they're, they're not doing it right. Following Christ is tough. Matter of fact, you see he's got 5,000 people. He talks about this difficult subject, and then a lot of people just check out and they're like, dude, who could even follow this? Aware that his, these disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit lives. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who yet do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe. And he also knew who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Look at John chapter 6 verse 66. From this time... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's tough. Right? The rejection Jesus just experienced is hard. I want to say this, man. When you follow Jesus, like you're like, I'm all in. I'm going to pursue Jesus 100%. There's going to be some times where it's uncomfortable. Then there's going to be times where it's uncomfortable. And the people who are beside you. Right, who are following Jesus with you are going to be like, no, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I don't want to put God first. This teaching is too tough. I'm going to find a church that makes it a little easier. I don't, I don't, I don't want to have to sacrifice my time. I don't, I don't want to have to like fully devote my life to Jesus. Just parts of it. And Jesus is like, like, I don't see Jesus chasing me. But here's what he does do. Look at verse 67. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus has the 12. And Peter, uh, probably his second greatest moment of his life, he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? He says, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. If you underline your Bible, do it. That's, that's, that's one other one. Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We now know, or we believe and know, that you are the Holy One of God. Hey, when people leave you, like when people leave this journey, when they veer off left or right, fix your eyes on Jesus. Things are good, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're in a storm, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're alone, fix your eyes on Jesus. Y'all, it is all about Jesus. In the good times, in the tough times, in the alone times, it's all about Jesus. Why? Because he has the words of eternal life. He's the Holy One of God. The question is, like disciples, do you believe it? We have a lot of things in our life competing, right, for our attention. Competing for our eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. There's a verse in, in Hebrews, which if I, if God would have blessed me to remember this before the sermon, would have been a really good addition. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Um, there's a lot of things that are trying to get our eyes, right? Of the analogy. There's things that are trying to take our time and our, our attention, our devotion. Maybe you go back to your successes. Maybe you go back to the struggles in your life. Or maybe you go back to just your loneliness. Those things are all trying to vie for our attention. Your success, <coughs> your failures, your loneliness. If you continue to give those all of your attention or most of your attention, you're going to come up in. You're going to come up wanting. You're going to come up with that same void that you have. It's probably just going to be more. In uh, the early 1990s, uh, Disney, um, Disney World, realized that most of their customers, most of their visitors, uh, were leaving dissatisfied. So they, they created this, uh, this survey, and the survey was, like people would say, were you dissatisfied? You know, all these, like, were you dissatisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, neutral, satisfied, extremely satisfied? You know those things? I don't know that's how they did it. But what they found out was that a lot of people were leaving Disney World dissatisfied. When Walt Disney created uh, Disney World, he wanted it to be the happiest place on earth, right? So then the issue is you got the happiest place on earth, yet people are leaving dissatisfied. What's happening? Why is this the case? So for the next few years, they had people fill out uh, a, a different kind of survey as they were leaving. And this was like gauge the, the, uh, the, the rides, right? The, the food. Everyone wrote extremely expensive. Uh, the, the rides, the food, the attractions. And all of those got high ratings. But what got the lowest rating was, again, the overall satisfaction. And under the bottom, they asked for comments. And you know what they kept saying was leaving them dissatisfied? It wasn't the rides. It wasn't uh, most of anything. It was they came to Disney World to see one person. <laughs> Mickey Mouse. 
you go to Disney World to see Mickey Mouse. And they were leaving dissatisfied because they just didn't get to see him. Nowadays, if you go to Disney World, at a certain time, they shut it all down. And they have the parade. And you know who's the center of the parade? It's Mickey Mouse. So whenever anyone comes to Disney World, there's no doubt that they're going to see Mickey Mouse. I want to tell you something about Restore Church. When you come here, there's no doubt you're going to see Jesus. We're going on through Restore You so you can just see the heartbeat of Restore Church. Love God relentlessly. Love people recklessly. Love the world radically. But if you want to know the next step, it's so we can make Jesus famous again. So when you come here, there's, we're going to try to do our best, right, to make sure that when you leave here, there's no doubt you've seen Jesus. Let me ask you, in your life, are you coming up dissatisfied? Like if you had to do an overall satisfaction, one through ten, are you like four, five, one, two? Maybe you're like six, but like I need more. I'm gonna ask you this question: Are you fixated on the king of the show? Like, are you fixated on Jesus or just everything else? Because if you're fixated on everything else, you're gonna be dissatisfied. Like, even if it's the greatest thing in the world, it's going to leave you wanting because it's going to fade away. But I tell you, in the middle of your storms, those things will not come to your rescue. Jesus will. Like, when you have that void and you're alone because everyone else has given up either on you or on the faith or whatever it is, you know who's going to fill that void? It's going to be Jesus. When you're success, like when you automatically, like someone's better than you and then you know how that goes. It's going to be Jesus. When you get in the boat and, and, and the storm's raging and Jesus gets in and the storm's still there, like you got you got you. 